It's Left of Baseball with Adrian Burgos, Craig Calcaterra, Lincoln Mitchell, and Tova Wang. Welcome to Left of Baseball, where we talk about the intersections of baseball, politics, civil rights, and social justice. Today, we have with us Professor Jerry Cadeva, that's how we know him, Gerardo Cadeva, who is Professor of History at Northwestern University. He's also now the director of Latina and Latino Studies at Northwestern and the author of The Hispanic Republicans. So one of the things we like to do with our guests is start with their journey in baseball. As a fan, you can tell us who you root for and kind of how you became interested in baseball itself. And then we can migrate towards discussion of politics and even the intersections of baseball and politics. Thank you guys for having me. It's great to be here. My journey in baseball is a long one. I mean, I, as a player, I am no Adrian Burgos. That's for sure. I did not play in college, but I played through high school. I was even the uh, most valuable player of my high school team my senior year. I was all county in prep B. I went to, I went to, um, I went to a small private school in Princeton, New Jersey called uh, Princeton Day School. And I, I say that just to you know set your expectations. When I talk about all county prep B, we're talking about like the Hun School, Petty, Princeton Day School, these kinds of things. But my batting average my senior year was like 542. Uh, and I was a pitcher and second baseman. So I played a lot, but I did not play at Dartmouth College when I... Um, started started college I, I mean i wasn't recruited i wasn't good enough i'm sure but before that my 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 interest in baseball really kind of goes back to the very beginning it was my my grandpa after whom i'm named Geraldo cadava um who introduced me to the game he was born in panama and he uh joined the air force and played baseball um on his kind of air force military team um and I grew up really rooting for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Um, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, and Southern California. It looks like a deeply disappointed Lincoln. I'm, I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> He'll let you know eventually that he's a Giants fan. I'll hear it. I'll hear it. But these were the days of like, um, you know, Fernando Valenzuela for sure, but Pedro Guerrero and Alfredo Griffin and uh, Franklin Shelby or Shelby Franklin. That's the first Alfredo Griffin mention we've had on this podcast. Alfredo Griffin. Yeah, that's right. Number four, I think. Um, and so, you know, for me, it, it was certainly liking that team and Steve Sachs. He was a, a favorite to Oral Hershiser and all of the stories about him starting games one, four and seven. I think he managed to get in three starts in one of the World Series. I think I could be wrong about that. It's It's been a while. But um you know, I have the, the very distinct memory of Kurt Gibson's one-handed home run in, in 88 or 89. And so that, that was my introduction. But for me, you know, a, a thing that um, I really loved about it was kind of introducing my grandma and great-grandma to the game of baseball. And back in the day when we used to have like a long-distance telephone plans, my great-grandmother in Safford, Arizona would literally spend an entire baseball game on the phone with me just watching um, L.A. Dodgers games. And for her, she became more uh, kind of impassioned about the sport than I did and just kind of wrote down all of the statistics. She kind of kept her own box score on uh, on the card. So for me, it was a really good like bonding experience with my, my grandma and my great-grandma, too. 
you know, what is it about Los Doyers that attracts so many Latino academics, yourself, Natalia Molina? You know, I think Lincoln really wants to hear this. <laughs> I don't know if he does. I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, I look, the Dodgers are my third favorite National League team in California. I mean, I got nothing. <laughs> look, I mean, the more educated you are, the more likely you are to be a Dodgers fan is what I'm getting. Well, from it this. used Am to I be, wrong? you know, if you're talking to someone 30 years older than, than, than me and Geraldo, it would be Jews and the Dodgers. John Thorne has said that, you know, the Dodgers were the, you know, the ultimate, like, like, you know, the 50s American Jew, you had to root for the Dodgers. And I said, well, my grandfather grew up in the Bronx, right? They were working class Jews in the Bronx, too. I don't know if anyone knows that, but, you know, he rooted for, they had a team, they still have a team in the Bronx. I don't know if anyone knows about that, but it's, you know. Yeah, no one cares. It is an interesting question, though. I mean, I, you know, um, because in some ways I feel like, Mexican-Americans have all of the reason in the world to hate the Dodgers since so many families were displaced from Chavez Ravine in order for Dodgers Stadium to be built. That was an earlier era. I think that was what, like early 60s or something like that. Um, And I would, I don't know, you know, I think Fernando Mania must have a lot to do with it. And, uh, you know, you have this pitcher from Echoaquila, Sonora, who is in the big leagues and wins the Cy Young Award as a rookie. And, um, you know, on nights, I remember trying to go to a Dodgers game on a night when Fernando Valenzuela pitched and you just couldn't get a ticket. I mean, the whole city was there. So I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, and then even in ways that I didn't understand until, you know, reading someone like Adrian's book about Pedro Guerrero and uh, Alfredo Griffin, you know, these kind of um, Latin American players who played with the Dodgers for a long time. So I think that's got a lot to do with it, too. The history here is interesting, right? Because we're having this discussion in 1965. The Dodgers were, were very slow to adapt. I mean, I mean, they were, they didn't, you know, you would be talking about the Alou brothers and Juan Marshall and people like that. So it was, you know, the Giants actually were way ahead of this. Now, they were, I mean, the Giants were, were way ahead of this. As, as All right, Lincoln. As written All right. Um, and then, I know, now I know, now I know what this podcast is about. It's about the... <laughs> The Giants-Dodgers rivalry, okay. No, I mean, no, but I mean, I think the history here is interesting, right? I mean, the Dodgers were, have now become, I think, to a great extent, the team of kind of Mexican-America, if that's the right way to phrase it, which yeah. is where the populations, the rivalry today is, is, is within the state of California, there are large Latino fan bases on both sides. Yeah, and that makes it very fun. That is interesting. And, you know, I wonder, the 80s, you know, is a period of, um, heightened immigration politics and the passage of the Immigration Reform and Control Act. And I remember, uh, you know, Cheech Marin's film, Born in East L.A. Uh, I think the cover of that movie is him wearing a Dodgers jacket and a Dodgers cap, too. So, you know, I wonder how in the 80s. There's even a joke in that movie, not that I am an aficionado of that movie, but there's even a joke where he's handing out fake IDs to someone saying, your name is Fernando Valenzuela, just act casual, you know, that kind of thing. I forgot about that. I forgot about that. So I wonder, I mean, it's an interesting, I don't know if anyone's like, Adrian, have you taken this on? I mean, what's up with Latinos and the Dodgers starting in the 80s? I mean, yeah, for certain, this is something that Natalia Molina has been uh thinking through and working on she's working on a book um dealing with la again and and kind of uh presenting in part uh the food cultures and the the sporting cultures of mexican americans so you know and well ironically um so natalia molina a fellow historian um she's now at uh at usc but one of the interesting things is that her grandmother 
um, owned a restaurant in near Dodger Stadium. And Fernando uh, appeared at one point and was not very kind. And so there's this confliction, you know, it's like, we love Los Doyers. We love the player that is Fernando Valenzuela, but like the person <laughs> and then like That's interesting. other things mix. So it's like an early version of the conversation we've been having in the, the me too era about distinguishing between the art and the artist, you know, sometimes you want to keep these people. We, uh, we are enamored with what they do as talents. We want to keep them at a distance. They're better on the pitcher's mound and instead of our restaurants. Yeah. I have never gone wrong learning less about a ball player than <laughs> learning more. <laughs> That's interesting. But I mean, as kids, we all wanted to meet them. I mean, we would go to the baseball card shows to get their autographs. We wanted nothing more than to befriend them. It is an interesting riff on, on our position as fans, right? Because what I mean, as kids, yes, wow, it'd be great to meet, you know, I don't know, you know, you're, you know, Fernando or, you know, Jack Clark or somebody, right? A blue. But, but the interaction isn't, it's, it's, unless it's Stan Musial. Right, it's never going to go as you want, and then you have that. I mean, I mean, I know so many fans who are you know our age who have this experience. I met him, and you know, every now and then there's a good interaction. But I mean, I know in interviewing, I did a book recently. I interviewed about ten or fifteen former ball players, and not a lot, but you know, some of them was really interesting, and they were really cool. And some of them, like you know, this was okay. I got what I need, and I'm getting out of this house fast. You know, so. Moving from the baseball field into the community, you know, and we talked about the Dodgers and we talked about the Giants. We talked about other teams as well. It's not always uh, Giants and Dodgers. But you've written a lot on how our perceptions of Latino voters have kind of been flawed. And even within the world of politics, electoral politics, that there is a a pretty significant history and, and number of conservative aligned voters among the community. So talk us a little bit about how your most recent book helps to us to better understand the story of the Hispanic Republicans. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This feels a little bit like an abrupt shift in topic. I mean, I, but I do wonder, I, you know, I don't have the answer to this, but like what the, the politics of baseball players are too, or what they is, what the politics is. I think politics is singular, not plural, but um, so I don't know much about that. I mean, yeah, go ahead. It's interesting. I'll just, you know, the thumbnail here, right, is baseball players are overwhelmingly conservative. The, the, certainly the white United States uh born uh, American players are are very conservative. They come from Southern and exurban communities. And there's this sense there. There is a an assumption, and I say it's an assumption because there are so few uh, native Spanish speakers in the sort of national baseball media. And we all we get this overwhelmingly sense, overwhelming sense uh, that this conservative monolith exists among baseball players. And then there's this assumption, that, well, the Latino players are probably not quite like that. And I think in some ways it maybe mirrors the assumptions, the ignorant assumptions most of us have about the Latino electorate. There's the sense, oh, if there's any sensibility, if there's anything coming from a more progressive point of view in baseball, it's from the Latino players. But we don't know that. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, do we not know that? Is that true, Adrian? Like they're like Latino baseball players in politics. There's not a lot of writing about this. 
we don't really know much. And one of the interesting things, so last year when Mariano Rivera was elected unanimous, or two years ago now, uh, elected unanimously to the Baseball Hall of Fame, and then word came out of, of how uh, he very much was a friend of Donald Trump, how many fans felt somehow like, wow, what's going Well, let me rephrase that. How many Latino fans felt like, oh, my goodness, how could you align yourself with that politics? And what I was getting at before was thinking about there's a history of that you help us to better understand of how Latinos, like their values, some of that can uh, very much align with the conservative movement and, and political uh, spectrum. Right. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to Latino baseball players, I mean, my first thoughts, and again, this is not, you know, these, these would be more like research questions than uh, my conclusive answers. But, you know, I'd be really curious to see how a politics of race and class aligns. I mean, I, you know, we only get little glimpses of, of this in the national media, but like, you know, Sammy Sosa and his skin whitening escapades after he retired. I mean, there's definitely a politics of race there. And then also, you know, I, I do get the feeling that a lot of these um, Latin American players, you know, they, they, they have stories about themselves and their own lives in many ways that mirror what you hear, like Arte Moreno, the owner of the Angels saying, or the, the Goizuetas, the, the Goya people that kind of pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You know, we played on a dirt lot. We didn't have a real ball, you know, but then we joined the league and made millions. Maybe they want to give back to their community and they start academies in, in Latin America or something like that. But once they become millionaires, I mean, I think it's an open question. Like, do they see themselves more as millionaires and identify with the kind of upper class of, regardless of race? Or do they still have a kind of ethos of giving back to the community? And we also have a handful of examples of Latino ballplayers who were doing progressive things. Carlos Delgado, who was a slugging first baseman uh, in the early part of this century. Uh, there was a first baseman for the Dodgers, also a slugging first baseman, whose name skips my mind was Latino a couple of years ago, who who made a statement in 2016 about not wanting to stay to Trump Hotel in Chicago. Adrian Gonzalez. And and that's that's significant also. So so I suspect that there's a range having to do with as you talked mentioned, class, race, country of origin, right? Because you know it's it's a it's a different it's a the, the demographics of Latino ballplayers are not the same as the demographics of Latinos in America by proportion or country of origin. So it looks probably also false to assume that all of the Latino players are the kind of um, they were impoverished kids in Latin America who you know defected from Cuba or something like that. And who, right, who like came. Adrian Gonzalez grew up pretty wealthy on both sides of the. I mean Felipe Alou, whose name we've talked about a lot on this podcast, who was. Um, you know, I'd like to see the Hall of Fame. This is my, you know, one of my, I'd like to see Fernando in the Hall of Fame too. And I'm not a Dodgers fan, but Felipe Alou, you know, in 64 wrote this article with the late Arnold Haina, who, who died just last week um, about Latino ballplayers uh, need a bill of rights. And that's a very progressive article. It's a very important article. So we, I think it's, I think it's a complicated political question, uh, picture here. I think that's right. Much, that's a better transition to politics than what we had, because it is a complicated picture. And, you know, I would, I would love to see more about it. I mean, there are all, there are probably all kinds of ways in which athletes are encouraged to stay out of the limelight, at least when it comes to politics, not that they can't have a politics, but don't um, announce it too loudly. I, I don't know if that's like, dep depending on the organization, if it's written into their contract, something like that. I mean, back to Adrian's question about politics. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, absolutely the, the case that for the past 50 
years, um, the Republican presidential candidate has won between a quarter and a third of the Latino vote, sometimes even a little more, as with uh, George W. Bush in 2000 and 2004, and even with Donald Trump in the year 2020, where his support edged up toward like 38%. So um, yeah, that's a long history. I mean, it is it, it is a kind of um, enduring question that I keep trying to answer about why the myth has persisted, despite that fact that Latinos are um, natural Democrats. And um, I, I could launch into that, but I would rather see where you guys would like to take the conversation. Well, I, I wouldn't mind talking about that a little bit, though. The, the myth, right, because in baseball, at least, there there are these sort of monolith myths as well about Latino players. Um, most sort of American fans who don't think too much about things don't really differentiate at all between the countries these guys come from. Uh, a player from Venezuela, a player from Dominican Republic, traditionally has been the same player in the minds of American, white American baseball fans. Um, their their approach to the game, their positions, what they're suitable for. I mean, there's a huge amount of racist baggage in all of that. And it's nowhere near as overt now as it would have been even 10, 20, 30 years ago. But it's there. And how much of... I mean, is that a similar dynamic to what we see in politics? Just these sort of cultural myths that are just sort of rooted in base racism that become a little bit more refined sounding as time goes on, but are still wrongheaded? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that that is half of the equation and half of the the other half of the equation. So base racism that's and, and the kind of um, uninterest or unwillingness to understand a group of people because of racism. I think that's one half of the equation. And I think the other half of the equation is the ways in which Latino advocates themselves perpetuate this idea that Latinos are natural liberals. Um, I think both both are going on, you know, and I think to the to the extent that people know about Latino diversity, it has to do with the thing you pointed to, which is um, national group diversity. And there are Cubans and Venezuelans and Mexican-Americans and Puerto Ricans. And I think, you know, people's ideas about Latino politics, if they have a nuanced sense at all, is that like, oh, Cubans are conservative, Venezuelans are conservative, but they're not as, you know, they're they're more conservative than Mexican-Americans or Puerto Ricans. And while I understand that, that in a general way, I would also want to complicate that by saying that there are plenty of conservative Mexican-Americans, plenty of conservative Puerto Ricans, plenty of liberal Cubans and Venezuelans. So it's a really complicated picture that we can, you know, uh, unpack a lot if you want. Yeah, Lincoln. One one thing that strikes me is that in in raising this question is that, you know, every election there is, uh, when when I teach, I teach political science and I tell my students that you can ask any question except for the stupidest question in American politics, which is why do white working class voters vote Republican? And, um, but after every election, the, the, the punditry goes into paroxysms of, of, of fetishization of this vote. And it should be noted that as recently as 1964, when none of us on this podcast were born yet, the Democratic candidate for president got a majority of the white working class vote, right? So to some extent, what strikes, there's two things I, I would raise. One is that the reason, one of the reasons is the Democratic Party desperately wants to tell a story about what its coalition is that is not the truth, Right. It is not it is not consistent with the Democratic Party's story to tell the to say that Jews vote in higher number for the Democratic Party than Latinos. That's not consistent with how they want to present themselves. Neither party wants you to believe that, right? For their own different reasons, but it's but it's true. And and the other point I would make is that is that having 
run a lot of campaigns over the years, if the low percentage is 62%, that's a strong Democratic vote, right? So, so from an analytical perspective, it's wrong to characterize Latinos as a solid Democratic bloc. But from a practical on-the-ground political perspective, especially when you vary it by state by state where that could be much higher, it's actually a very reasonable approach. If I'm running a Democratic campaign in Texas, I'm doing a blind poll of Latinos with a few exceptions. I think that's absolutely right. And I, I've done a lot of thinking about this as a historian and not as a political strategist. I mean, because I do think you're right. I mean, 62 percent, that's very respectable. You're going to win every Democratic election with 62 percent. And therefore, I think a lot of Democratic strategists get really upset by the um, uh, disproportionate or outsized amount of attention that gets paid to Latino Republicans, because it's true that, you know, almost two thirds of Latinos reliably vote for Democrats. I wouldn't, if I were a Democratic strategist, which I'm not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be so comfortable with that idea to believe that that can't change at some point. So, so that gets to this, like, demography is destiny idea that there, you know, that's a, I think that was probably a, uh, a, an assumption built on a shaky foundation to begin with, because we all know that politics has changed. And this idea that like de demography is destiny, I mean, that assumes a static Republican party that's not going to try to do anything on its own to increase its share of the Latino. It also vote. assumes that demography is static, right? It, 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 I mean, you know, there are plenty of white voters whose grandparents and great -grandfather, grandparents were not considered white. And you can certainly see that happening with other groups as well. So the democracy is, is, is fluid as well. The, demo the demography is fluid as well. The demography is fluid as well. And, and it's just kind of, if you, if you really think about it, it's, it's uh, not a great idea in the sense that, like, you wouldn't want demography to be destiny because then what does that mean? That p political parties don't have to change at all in response because they've already got a vote locked up. So... I just don't think it it makes a lot of sense. Um, but I'll tell you what. I mean, one thing I think that Democratic strategists worry about is that, and I think they've also, Democratic strategists, I think, have been the ones who've been really invested in this idea that Latinos are a voting bloc that comes together to support progressive policies in overwhelming numbers. I think they're really invested in that idea because if, some other narrative about Latinos develop, like we're swing voters, or we don't all care about comprehensive immigration reform or uh, relaxing border restrictions. And so if our coalition starts to fragment in different ways, we have less political power. So I've talked to people who've told me quietly that what they're most worried about is um, people on Capitol Hill, congressmen taking from an election like 2020, where Republicans increase their support, that Latinos aren't all on the same page and that we don't all act together. Because if, if we don't act together, then why would politicians spend a lot of political capital on supporting comprehensive immigration reform, for example? It's a different electoral coalition than it is a policy coalition. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I didn't finish the thought about like historians versus political strategists, but I think, you know, as a historian, I'm, I'm not concerned with explaining 50.1% of the population. You know, I'm, I, I try to make sense of all Latinos. And if I try to make sense of all Latinos, and we're not talking about a statistically small number of people, we're talking about millions of people. I mean, you know, in history or in scholarship, you know, we often play a numbers game like, well, how do I know your sample is statistically relevant or representative of something? But I don't think anyone would say that like a third of the 
voting eligible Latino population is a small number. I mean, that's a significant chunk of people whose ideas and self-conceptions and politics that we should be curious about explaining. And there's, there's a, I think that, that that's right. And also that it's not, that third is not like randomly distributed among the 50 states or among over Latino. It's, it's different in different places. And, and it just, it, it, it you know, I, I often have this discussion with some of my colleagues uh, in political science, but also in history, which is that is this, and also with political strategists, is, which is that, is this a useful way to think about voting, to think about campaign strategy? Would you be better off if you were running, if you were thinking about Joe Biden or someone's political strategy or a Texas statewide candidate or California, New York, would you would you be smarter if you ended up never using the word Latino and talking about people with, with another their country of origin, their neighborhood, their their region within the state or the country? Uh, just one, I'm, I'm not I'm not making I'm trying to just use a political strategy. That's an interesting question, maybe. Or the flip side of that would be always talking about Latinos, even when you're in Wisconsin and North Dakota and places where there are more and more Latinos, but still are a small percentage of the population. Because I think, you know, I've been on I've been pretty down on the Electoral College lately, but for for a specific really reason related to Latinos and how it doesn't encourage candidates or campaigns to really get to know the national Latino population, because I think, you know, it's still a fact that elections are decided in just a handful of states, Texas, California. I mean, those are less swing states, but more like Arizona, Florida, Ohio, Wisconsin, whatever. Um, And I think it's true that Latinos are concentrated in those important battleground states, but the Electoral College incentivizes candidates to think of Florida in terms of like, oh, that's the Cubans and Arizona. Oh, that's the Mexican-Americans. But the truth is that Latinos, A, are spread all over the place, all over the country. And the number of eligible Latino voters, even in a place like Wisconsin or Iowa or Massachusetts, is greater, not Massachusetts, that's, this is not true. The mar- I was going to say greater than the margin of victory, but in these very narrowly decided states, there are more eligible Latinos uh, to vote than the number of votes a candidate wins by. So I would encourage candidates to like just assume from the very get-go that Latinos, that they're talking to Latinos everywhere they go, you know, everywhere they go. And it would be appalling that they that they wouldn't. I mean, what you said about Wisconsin, I happen to have just been in Wisconsin, but what you said about Wisconsin, that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, that's, that's absolutely right. And, and I don't know how they wouldn't act on that. I mean, it's appalling. Right, right. I mean, I think, you know, these political narratives about like the, the Rust Belt Midwest, that's a story about the decline of the white working class, you know, and that's how we have the this region in our mental maps politically, you know. So, um, so, I think that like candidates assume that when they go to Wisconsin or Michigan, they're talking to the white working class. And that's the kind of uh, swing voter whose votes they're trying to attract instead of Latino dairy workers and others. So so when I say I mean, I'm kind of it's kind of tongue in cheek when I say like, yeah, maybe they don't mention Latinos at all or maybe they mention Latinos all the time wherever they go. I think part of that also has to do with trying to stitch the country back together again after it's been very fragmented politically in part because of the electoral college or whatever. So, you know, making a Latino dairy worker in Wisconsin understand that their life is not all that dissimilar from 
a Latino in California, you know, I mean, the map gets too politically fragmented and I think we should do a better job of trying to understand our connections to one another. We're constantly traversing the line between baseball speak and academia on this podcast because except for Craig, this is the world many of us traverse constantly. Um, and so, um, you know, and, and I was thinking about the, the works that have uh, emerged on Latinos in the Midwest and understanding how a lot of the new um, industries that have, that have really sought to propel the economies in Iowa, the poultry, the, the meat processing, so reliant on Latino labor on Latino families relocating there that, you know, we do have, there's, and this is part of what you were saying, uh, Jerry, that it's really significant. It's like, there's Latinos everywhere. And, you know, you, you go to Dubuque, Iowa, and you go outside of Dubuque into the small cities and you, you find Latinos, you find Mexican restaurants. Well, I would be curious to know, I mean, I feel like you guys would know the rosters of individual baseball teams much better than I, but like, are the Latino and Latin American players on the Kansas City Royals? I mean, are they seen as Latino members of the Kansas City community as well? And do they, you know, are there Kansas City fans who wear jerseys to the games all the time with Latino last names on their backs? And um, are they embraced by the community as Latinos? And do they draw Latino supporters to the games? I mean, so that, that's an interesting question you, I think. you do see it there is a there is a bit of a double standard there or, or a, a higher bar to clear i think for latino players if you if you play for two years and you're a superstar white player uh you know you you might be considered a pillar of the community and have people screaming your name but if you're not on the team for five or seven years as a latino player you're just thought of as a guy who's here for a little while because oh he goes back home to the dominican republic in the winter and he's not our guy that's interesting because there's a parallel with like laborers, you know, the laborers are birds of passage, Latin Americans, you know, they're just here to save a little money, then they're going to go back home and build their homes in Latin America. So they're not like bedrock. I mean, in Kansas members. City, Salvador Perez, of course, he is he is a, a franchise icon. But if you're, you know, a second baseman who's been there for a year and a half, eh, we'll get to know you in a little while. So uh, it's an interesting question you asked, Jerry, because before the pandemic, where we really saw baseball reaching out to Latinos was at the minor league level. Um, they had organized this um, program called Copa de la Diversión. The, 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 how do you, the diversión is... Yeah, what would you, what, how would, I mean, yeah. uh, entertainment, but I don't yeah, know. The cup of entertainment, you know, it's not diversity cup. When people often hear diversion, it's like, oh, diversity cup. It's like, no, it's, it's more like entertainment. But what they were doing was working with Latino communities in minor league cities and with the players and helping um, the community, not just the Latino community, but the overall community get to know the players better. And they would change, you know, they would change their uniforms for, uh, six to eight games during the year, and it would be the um, you know Los Mariachis, and the um, the team down in San Antonio, the Missions became Las, the Flying Chanclas, and they they changed oh, their wow. their a logo and everything, and it was interesting because it did expose many non Latinos to Latino cultures, and kind of there's this cultural rover version um, that a reversal that uh, allowed baseball to be shared in a different kind of way. 
Major League teams don't have that, but you do have these local cultures. So if we're talking about baseball today, um, I was just talking to my sister the other day about she lives in Georgia, and she's asking me, who am I rooting for in the World Series? It's Houston, where she actually used to live, and it's Atlanta. And my frame of reference has always been, well, which team has the most Latino players? Um, And uh, when my team's not in it, which – you know, the Yankees haven't been in the World Series in quite a few years, and you guys can all enjoy that. Who, How do fans identify, in this part of your question, Jerry, how do they identify with the Latino players that play on their teams? And the other really interesting part about that is, do they know some of the players in front of them are Latino? For example, Alex Verdugo, you know, who's Mexican-American. I mean, he tries to show you. He puts it on his glove, the red, white, and, and, uh, and green glove he wears at times. He, uh, he wear, Sometimes his batting gloves will show the flags of a three. You know, but Verdugo, what is that? He looks, you know, phenotypically white. He's got a red beard. Um, and another guy would be Ozzy Albies. It's like he's from Curacao, but he speaks Spanish fluently, fluently and fluently. And, you know, his best friend on the team is Ronald Cunha Jr. And they're always on the bench joking around in Spanish. But he's not African-American. But they, people will say, oh, but we, he's a black guy. And so, you know, that's one of the, the really interesting aspects of, like, the Latino next to you that we don't quite know. And it, I think it also kind of rel, uh, wraps up in the realm of electoral politics. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I look, I'm, I'm a historian, not an American studies, cultural studies scholar, but I think there I think cultural studies, American studies scholars might have a really interesting time uh, writing about like the sounds and sights at a baseball game and how the sounds and sights get read by particular audience members. I mean, I, I mean, I'm talking about like the music that accompanies each batter's approach to the box, you know, like the Latino players have reggaeton or whatever. Some don't, some have kind of like eighties rock. That's kind of interesting. But then I went to a Rockies game over the summer and, um, you know, I think the most popular player on that team right now is probably Blackman. I can't remember his first first Charlie. name, but you know, he's got like that grizzled beard, like that. To me, he looks like a lumberjack that would appeal to like the white working class fans or something like that. So, I I don't. I'm just like riffing here. I don't know that that's what other people see, but it would be interesting to know what kind of sights and sounds appeal to different demographics and what audiences. Also, what also strikes me is that you know. Uh, I'm thinking of a player who grew up a Dodgers fan and ended up on the Giants, Sergio Romo, right? Who who famously wore that "I only look illegal" jersey to the World Series parade, uh, and and you know in in this town in San Francisco, people loved it, right? But this is also a town, a city, a team where one of their star pitchers was a hippie who got busted for smoking pot, and the, and they responded by marketing T-shirts. I mean, looking the other way that said "Let Timmy smoke near the ballpark," right? So. So I wonder whether, you know, ballplayers of all ethnic groups, but we're talking about Latinos here, like would Sergio Romo have felt comfortable wearing that jersey if he'd been on a Royals team that had won the World Series? Royals won a few years later. He wasn't on that team. But so I wonder how that plays into it as well. Boston is a very different community uh, in in which to be a Latino or certainly African-American than, say, L.A. or even New York. That's true. And I mean, another layer of that is I think it it seems to me like teammates often want to behave in solidarity with their teammates, too. So if some social justice issue is important to a handful of their teammates, just observationally, I feel like many other teammates are happy to go along with that or willing to go along with that to support teammates. 
Um, I was interested in what you were saying, Adrian. I mean, it would be an interesting question to study, like, what is the more effective level to try to change people's opinions about Latinos through baseball? I mean, would it be the minor league or the major league? I mean, major league teams tend to be in like bigger markets and more urban areas where the population might be more liberal than um, in other parts of the state. That said, of course, fan bases are spread all across the state. But you know, I mean, I could see an argument about minor league teams being a better place to kind of really reach communities on the ground because they're smaller markets. They're in the heartland. I mean, in some of these places, the minor league game might be the biggest game in town, you know, and so um, some of these people might be local heroes, but, you know, it's a smaller number, but maybe more impactful. Well, and of course, that was before Major League Baseball decided that uh, they needed to realign the configuration of minor league baseball and sent a whole bunch of uh, communities out into the wilderness of baseball. I wanted to circle back to something, Jerry, because you did bring this up and I didn't give it enough time. You were talking about that link between your family, your, 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 your abuelita, your, your great grandmother and baseball. And I have a similar story. Um, and, and I want you to talk a little bit more because when we were, um, when I was working on a project for play ball with the Smithsonian, this discussion of women in baseball became something where we ended up seeing quite a bit. It, it was much more significant and important than often historians and, and journalists who've given cover to that. So can you talk a little bit more about the experience with your, um, with your grandmother in baseball and how that facilitated fandom or familiness? <laughs> Totally, totally. You know, it, in their case, I don't think it actually had to do with um, some pre-existing interest in s- the game of baseball or sports in general. I actually think for, in their cases, it had to do with a, a sincere desire to just connect and bond with me, their grandchild or great-grandchild. But then it transformed into something else, you know. Um, because then, you know, it really started, I, you know, probably because I was a kid who wouldn't shut up about Pedro Guerrero and my grandma and great grandma were curious about who that person was. Um, and so they watched, but then they got a little more invested Then they got a little more invested, but it got to the point where whether I was with them or talking to them or not, I mean, they were biting their nails, watching baseball games. The same thing has happened with my grandma and Arizona basketball, the college team, because I've been really excited about Arizona basketball. And so now she follows them and gets more excited about the games than I do. And, you know, there's some of it's about sport, but some of it, you know, if I'm being honest, Adrian, part of it probably has to do with loneliness in old age, you know, and wanting to um, connect with family members, feeling like me, I'm now 44, have my own family and, you know, family members still trying to find ways to connect with one another, you know, and, uh, Sport has has been it. Sport also, frankly, I mean, within families, it's a good way to avoid politics and uh, and other things. You know, I mean, I can talk about how awesome Pedro Guerrero is without engaging about other either sensitive family dynamics or political dynamics. You know, when I worked with this other group previously called La Vida Baseball, and we kept talking about baseball as family and family as baseball. But in in a different sense, you're helping us understand that, like, yeah, sport and baseball can be just the link, not the thing. It's the link that 
puts people together and, and gives it different kinds of meaning as well. Yeah. And it's also helped me. I mean, I, I did talk about my grandparents. It's helped me understand my dad in a different way, too, because, you know, how many people on this call like thought they were going to be a major league baseball player at some point? I oh, I knew the genetics weren't there. Very young. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, very young. I mean, I'm sure we all wanted to be. But, you know, there are stories about my my dad that my grandma still loves to tell about. You know, he was a military brat, so moved from Air Force Base to Air Force Base. And he played in the Little League and uh, in Texas, you know, after having moved from Panama, where they were stationed to Texas, like baseball was the way that my dad first started developing friends. And she always tells this story about my dad in one game hitting a home run and then everyone on his team, it was a game winning home run. So everyone on his team kind of carrying him on their shoulders. And that was such a proud moment for her, for him, to the point that like, you know, she was still telling me this story 30, 40 years after the fact. So, and my dad is an English professor who I do not, sorry, dad, if you would ever listen, who is not an athletic person right now, you know? And, but so thinking of my dad, like the baseball hero in an earlier moment of his life helps me see my dad in a different way too. Thank you.